Well, <clears throat> I have to admit that this uh, chilly temperature in the sanctuary this morning makes us all feel a bit more stoic than we usually are. And I don't think it's about the Holy Spirit in this issue, it's just about the cold. Well, today we plan to finish our study in the book of Exodus. It's been a quick uh, journey and a rather adventurous story. However, I want to give you a, a heads up about next week. Uh, we plan to begin a New Testament series on the person of Christ based on some crucial concepts that we learn in our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, the series that we'll embark on next week, uh, which will carry us through the Christmas season, is entitled, Christ, Our Exodus. So if you're visiting today, we encourage you to come back next week and learn about how Christ fulfills some of the key features of the book of Exodus. Yet today, our aim is to finish the last part of this book. Before we begin, let me give you a quick run through what we covered so far. Uh, we saw how Exodus gives us a picture how Israel was freed from slavery. But more than that, we, we've been saying throughout this book that Exodus is not just about Israel getting out of Egypt. The book of Exodus is about the God who redeemed Israel. And really the major question in the book of Exodus is a question posed not by the people of Israel, but, but by Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in chapter 5, the first question he asks of Moses is this. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And, and the rest of the book of Exodus answers this question. And we see some of the answers so far that the book of Exodus has given us. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The answer is, number one, he's the God who saves. Number two, he's a God who accompanies a grumbling people. Number three, he's a God who makes a covenant with his people. And number four, and the answer we will look at today, is he's a God who dwells amongst his people. He's a God who dwells amongst his people. Would you open scripture to the book of Exodus, chapter 24? And we'll be reading through a few, verse, through a few parts of, of this book. We'll be reading from chapter 24. Then we'll move on to chapter 31, and then we'll move on to chapter 40. So I encourage you to keep your minds alert as we read God's Word this morning. Exodus chapter 24. We'll begin reading in verse 12. And we go through verse, chapter 25, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, 
the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red and hides of all of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I, dwell, I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high, overlaid with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold springs for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They're not to be, to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with a cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place a cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Turn to chapter 31. We'll be reading from verse 18 to chapter 32, verse 14. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses was long in Coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him 
and made it into an, into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should, you, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now turn with me to chapter 40. The last few verses of this book will be reading from verse 34. To 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Amen. This is how the book of Exodus ends. Let's bow our heads in, in prayer before the Lord. Father, we pray that you enable the eyes of our hearts to see how you desire to dwell among your people. Even though we're many centuries away from the Israelites and their situation, we pray that our hearts would be tender and warm and open to hear and understand the principles of how you dwell with your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen. Well, we, we reach the point in the story of Exodus when Israel and Moses just finished their most important event. They made a covenant with God, with a God who brought them out of Egypt. And this covenant was a visible and public ceremony that symbolized how God was committing himself to the people and how God elicited the people to commit themselves to God. Now, as soon as the covenant-making ceremony is finished, we find out that the Lord calls Moses to come up the mountain. And in that process, on that journey up on the mountain, God gives Moses instructions about how to build a home for God. Now today, we find out another purpose why, and the final purpose why God brought Israel out of Egypt. The, the purpose is most explicitly stated in chapter 29, verse 46. And the Lord says, They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Here's why God brought Israel out of Egypt, that God might dwell with his people. Now, in the series of, of the book of Exodus, we, we said a few things. We, we mentioned already a few purposes why God brought Israel out of Egypt. It was not only to give Israel independence, but it was so that Israel might serve the living God. The second reason why God brought Israel out of Egypt was so that God might bring Israel to himself. And today, we see a third reason why God brought Israel out of Egypt, so that God might dwell with his people. Now, these three purpose statements are clearly stated behind God's rescue operation. And these purpose statements are important for us as Christians as well. This is not just for the Old Testament. This is for us Christians, believers. And if you are here this morning, a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, here's the purpose of God's salvation for us. He did not save us simply to rescue us from sin and death and to, to take us off from the hook of eternal death. Here's why God saved us. God saved us so that we might serve Him. God saved us so that He might bring us to Himself. And God saved us so that he might dwell amongst us. As we approach this last section of the book of Exodus, I would like for us to see three acts in the story of, of, this, of how God plans to dwell with his people. Number one, God plans to dwell among his people, and he gives instructions about his plans. Number two, God wants to destroy his people. And number three, God ends up moving with his people. God plans to dwell among his people. God plans to destroy his people. And finally, God moves in with his people. Now, the essence of the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus is found in the request God makes to Moses in chapter 25, verse 8, which we've read this morning. Here's the request God makes to Moses. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now notice it is God who comes up with the initiative 
uh, and with the idea of building a tabernacle. At Sinai, the Lord brought the people to himself by making a covenant with them. But remember, Sinai was not their end destination. It was not their final destination. God was about to have the people move on their journey. And it was very easy for the people to associate God's presence with a particular place, like the Mount Sinai. And God wanted to make sure people don't do that. Instead, God wanted to make sure that He gives them a symbol, a reminder that God is going to travel with them from Mount Sinai. And that reminder is this tabernacle. Friends, as we think through the instructions that God gives to the people of Israel about building this tabernacle, we might feel a little overwhelmed by the instructions. If you were to read the instructions God gives to people, to, to Moses, how to be, build this tabernacle, it feels like we're reading through some instruction manuals. Do you like reading instruction manuals? Just for fun. I mean, if you get bored during your day, just, just read some instruction manuals in your, in your daily schedule. It will really make your life exciting. Well, if we read in this section of the book of Exodus from chapter 25 to chapter 31, it is literally like an instruction manual. And no matter who you are, you might be a, a veteran Christian who's been a Christian for a long time or a new Christian, or you might be here this morning and, and, and have not made a conscious, deliberate submission to the Lord. You're not yet a follower of Christ. You, somebody may have invited you this morning and you're just here. You may have heard this long passage and you're wondering, oh my goodness, what are we going to get from this detailed description of things that have no application to us today? Reality is, no matter who you are, the description of how God asked Moses to build a tabernacle may seem irrelevant to us. But let me give you some perspective here. Imagine... God and Moses are in the office of a custom home builder. And if you've ever been in one of those situations where you have to go in and select every little material and every choice of, of how, how the door hangers and how, how the windows and how the ceiling and how how all the fixtures will look like. It's a very tedious process of selecting all the choices you want to make so that your home will be made of those materials so that you can actually enjoy your home. That's why custom-made custom homes are more expensive. Why? Because you get to choose everything that you want in it. Nobody else makes that choice for you. Yes, it's a tedious process, but here's... Here's what we get in the book of Exodus. God tells Moses his plans for a custom home. And he's going to tell Moses everything he wants in it. It's very descriptive. It may be very boring, but at the end of the day, we get a picture of what God wants his home to look like. And here's why we as Christians, we should be interested in what God selects. Because we get a picture of what matters to God, what He wants in His home, 
how He wants His dwelling to be. Second of all, we should be interested in these details because the tabernacle, we are told, the tabernacle that God asked Moses to build for God was actually a copy of a heavenly tabernacle. In the book of Hebrews, we're given this clear statement that it was just a copy of a sanctuary, of a tabernacle that was in heaven. As a matter of fact, even Exodus 25 verse 9 tells us that God says to Moses, make this sanctuary exactly with a pattern of what I will show you. What exactly did God show him? Most likely it was, it was the description of the, the heavenly tabernacle. But thirdly, a third reason why we Christians need to be interested in the Old Testament tabernacle is because the elements placed in it tell us something about how God required to be approached in the Old Testament. And more importantly, it, they tell us what Christ fulfilled in His death on the cross for us so that we today could appreciate how we can approach God through Christ. Now, we will not be able to unpack today all the details of the tabernacle. It will take us a much longer journey. But let me make just a few broad strokes. What is significant about the instructions God gives for the tabernacle is that God begins His instructions with building the Ark of the Covenant, not the tabernacle. God starts the instructions with asking Moses to build the ark. Now, why the ark? What was so special about the ark? Because the ark was the essence that symbolized God's presence in the tabernacle. And the, the ark was a, 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 a box that had three parts to it. God asked Moses to put the testimony in the box. And the testimony was were the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments and they were a testimony because they testified to the covenant of God, the covenant God made with Israel. So they were supposed to put a, the testimony in this box. Then they were supposed to cover this box with a cover made of gold, made of solid gold. And that cover of gold was not going to remain shiny for a very long time because the priest was supposed to come there and once a year, shed blood on that cover. It was the cover where the priest brought the blood of sacrifices once a year to atone, to cover for the sins of the people. Why is that significant? Because the testimony that was in the box, the law that God had, the law of the covenant, could not stand between God and the people without blood. The people could not approach God without blood. So the cover, the, the box that contained the, the testimony, the law of the covenant, was covered with this, with this cover of gold on which a priest would, would shed blood every year. And then on top of that cover, God asked Moses to put two cherubim. These were the divine beings that were looking down at the testimony of God. And had the blood that covered the testimony of God. And his, their wings were, 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 were pointing upward to God. And God said that there, on the cover, above the cover, between the cherubim. Look at verse, God says in, in, in verse 25, 
verse 22 in chapter 25, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. The reason why the ark was so important is because the, there on the ark, above the covering, between the two cherubim, God's presence would be most manifested. And this is why the ark is so crucial in the entire edifice of the tabernacle. It provided the climax of God's presence. Now, we will not look at the rest of the tabernacle and, and how God required it uh, to be built, but these detailed chapters tell us that when God planned to dwell with His people, He determined every detail of His dwelling place. And as of the charts as these detail, uh, details appear to us, the intricate planning and the choice of, of design tell us that every detail was meaningful to God and that the way His people were to approach Him was predetermined by God. It was not left to the creativity of the people on how they are to enjoy God's presence in their midst. God plans to dwell with His people. But as soon as God finishes giving Moses the plans on how He's going to dwell amongst the people, we find out that all along, people have some different plans down in the camp at the bottom of the mountain. And how true of us as well. God above the mountain has these plans for His people. A perfect scenario where God could come down and live with His people and people could approach God. But down at the bottom of the mountain, people engage in different plans. In something completely opposite. As soon as God finished speaking with Moses about building of the tabernacle, with the ark and with the priesthood, we found out that, find out that the people all along have been planning something different. What did they do? The very thing God had told them not to do, ever. The very thing God had threatened the people that if they will do, God will punish them. That very thing they fall and do. They build an idol, a tremendous sin. And the sin was so serious that God wanted to destroy them. Now, this does not sound very loving. How can we worship a God who wants to destroy His people? Notice, however, what this text tells us. Look at chapter 32, verse 10. God wanted to destroy the people so He could start again with Moses. Here's what God tells Moses. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now notice God was still committed to have a great nation. Do you realize that? God was still committed to have a great nation. It was simply that he was no longer willing to do it through these people. He was willing to start again fresh, just like he did with Abraham many, many years ago. Moses, however, pleads with God, reminding him of God's reputation among the Egyptians. And remember, this is why God brought the plagues the way he did against the Egyptians, so that the Egyptians will know that God is the Lord over, over all other gods, and that God is able to rescue his people from the hands of the Egyptians. This was this was the point why God saved Israel the way He did. 
God's reputation was the most important factor in the way God saved Israel. It was not for the sake of Israel. It was for the sake of the reputation of the name of God. And Moses reminds God, remember, what will nations say if they find out they, you will destroy this, this people? And then Moses goes on and reminds people, God reminds God of, of the covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And the end of that conversation we know is that God relented and did not bring upon the people the dis- disaster he threatened. Yet if you read the rest of the story, we find out that God commanded the Israelites to go through the camp and kill all those who did engage in idolatry. Exodus chapter 32 verse 28 we're told that the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And if we keep reading, verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with a calf Aaron made. Now, friend, you're here this morning. Perhaps somebody has invited you to church. Perhaps you came on your own initiative to seek after God, but you have not surrendered your life to God. This text is very scary. And you may rightly ask, Why would I ever, ever consider to worship a God who does such things? Even if you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, even to you this question is difficult to answer. I understand. But here's the story. Here's the explanation why God commanded people to destroy those who involved and engaged in idolatry and why God himself destroyed and brought plague upon the nation of Israel this time. Not just upon Egypt, but upon the nation of Israel. Here's why. The book of Exodus begins with a story of God's grace. With the way God redeemed his people out of slavery to Egypt. Despite their, their long standing in slavery for about 400 years, despite what the Egyptians have done to them, God brought the nation out of slavery. And it was not because Israel was good to God. It was not because Israel followed God's command. God brought Israel out of a slavery prior to God giving them any commands. This was God's grace. And the reason why God brought Israel out of slavery was because of the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So from the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see the the story of Exodus as a sign of God's grace. And then once they're out, we see how how God accompanied this people, even though they were crumbling all along. And we see how God accompanied in His grace with, with them, providing for their needs, even though they constantly grumbled against God. Then God finally brings him to Mount Sinai and he gives him his laws and tells him, you will be my special people. You will be a holy nation. You will be a royal priesthood. All these are signs of God's grace to the people. And then God makes a covenant with them and and says, I'm committing myself to you. And 
God says, and I want you to commit yourself to me. And they make the covenant. And as we saw last week, God covenanted with his people. This again was an act of God's grace. But after all of that, after people have committed themselves to God, and after God revealed his loss to them, and they said, yes, we will obey. Yes, we will do so. Here's what these people do. Not only do they make an idol out of gold and with their own hands, but they begin ascribing to this man-made idol the glory of God for bringing them out of Egypt. The people get together around this idol and say, Look, O Israel, the gods who brought you out of Egypt. It is no wonder that God is going to, to, to destroy them. God had told them in His laws that if they will worship other gods, the God who brought them out of Egypt is a jealous God. And He will punish those who will worship other gods. This is not a surprise for the people of Israel. They knew, they heard this, and they committed to this process. And yet, their hearts were so far away from God after seeing all those signs of grace that even at the end of the day, they still in conscious, open rebellion refused God and ascribed to man-made idols the glory that belonged to God alone. Reality is, dear friends, that the God that the Bible presents to us is a God of love. He's a God of grace who rescues us even before we can earn it. He brings us to Himself. He brings us into a covenant with Himself. He wants us to be His treasured possession. But at the end of the day, after all His grace, after all His mercies upon us, after His laws which He presents to us, if we continue to stand in conscious rebellion against God, the Bible does tell us that God, at the end of the day, will crush anyone and everyone who rebels against Him. And dear friends, this is not just the message of the Old Testament. This is the message of the book of Revelation. At the end of the day, God will crush those who are enemies of God. So what we have here, the reason why it's hard for us to understand why God wants to destroy the nation and why this is really a sign of God being faithful is that God had told people, God told the Israelites what He will do if they will rebel against Him. So here, this is not an act of God or, or, or a picture of God's hate. This is a picture of God's faithfulness. God will do what He said He will. God will. But at the same time, God does say that those whom He redeems by grace, He will protect. Dear friends, we see here in the book of Exodus a story of how God plans to dwell with His people. But the sin of Israel is so great that their rebellion is a threat to God's presence among the people. The greatest obstacle Israel faced in the book of Exodus was not Egypt, but the golden calf. And I think this needs to be a warning for us, for the church. The greatest obstacle Israel faced was not Egypt, was not the land of slavery, was the golden calf. 
The golden calf scenario puts in jeopardy God's plans to move with us, to move with His people. It is also a great lesson to God's people that God's presence is not necessarily safe. When sin is ignored, or worse, when sin takes over the life of a community, the presence of God becomes a threat to their well-being. Like what Alec Motier, one of the theologians of the Old Testament, said, through the golden calf, Israel's eyes were opened to their sin, to its seriousness and awful consequences, and they were made to face the divine holiness, not as a reality in heaven, but as a force here on earth. This is not just in the Old Testament, dear friends. In the New Testament as well, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 to 32. And I read this because last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And this is, this is very particular for us as well. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. You see, God's act of, of judgment and discipline stands even in the New Testament. You say, how can this be the love of Christ? All along, we have heard about the fact that God is love, Christ is love. Friends, He is love, but He's not a sentimental love. One of the greatest illustrations in our, in our century um, recently has been, has been made by C.S. Lewis. In one of the stories, uh, he has this character of the lion, the great lion by the name of Aslan. Uh, he's the central character in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, a series of, of seven stories for children. And, and he depicted, C.S. Lewis depicted this lion as a, as a talking lion. He's a wise and compassionate, uh, magical authority lion. He's a mysterious and benevolent guide to children who come and visit. And he's a guardian and a savior of the land of Narnia. Yet throughout the series, it is stated that Aslan is not a tame lion, since despite his gentle and loving nature, he's powerful and can be dangerous. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis depicted this character or developed this character to depict Christ. Yes, he's loving and gentle, compassionate and tender-hearted. He loved us so much that he went to the cross to die in our place. But that does not mean that he will entertain rebels forever. Is it ever a wonder that early on in the New Testament, when two so-called believers by the name of Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about their generosity, what did God do? God killed them. Why? Because the presence of God is a threat to unrepentant sin. And the sin of Israel, dear friends, threatened the possibility of God living with His people. Finally, we saw how God made plans to move with His people. We saw how God threatened to destroy His people. But finally, God ends up moving 
with his people. And this is how the book of Exodus ends. It ends on a positive note. God relents from the destruction he was about to bring. And we find out at the beginning of chapter 35 that the construction of the tabernacle begins. And the construction goes on until the end of chapter 40. And the end of the book ends, the, the final part of the book ends with the following verses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This was the fulfillment of what God, what the Lord had initiated in chapter 25, verse 8. Dear friends, I'm here to say that God is a God of grace. God dwells with His people. God wants to move in with His people, but the sin of the people is a reminder and a threat to God's presence, and God's presence is a threat to the well-being of the people of God when they continue to live unrepentant. So what do we learn about the tabernacle? What do we learn about the way God designed the tabernacle? Let me just leave you with three quick things. First of all, the tabernacle became a symbol of God's presence among His people. Second, the tabernacle also became a symbol of, of man's distance from God. This is a paradox of the tabernacle. Even though it was a symbol of God's presence with His people, it was also a symbol of their sinfulness because of the restrictions that God gave to them for how they are to approach God reminded them they could not come to God without the shedding of blood. So the very reminder of God's presence with His people was also a reminder of man's distance from God. Thirdly, the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle tells us that the presence of the Lord is a presence that requires people to be at His disposal, not for the Lord to be at the disposal of the people. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out. The purpose of the Lord's presence with the people was so that He could lead them. My dear friend, I wonder how casually do you think about the presence of the Lord in your life? Is Christ for you like a convenient person to keep around for times of trouble? Do you see Him only as a helpline? Or do you see Him as a commander in charge of your life? What about us as a congregation? What should we hope for as we seek and ask God to be with us? Just a cozy time? Warm and good feeling and always smiling? Is the presence of the Lord with us just a cozy time? Is it only a, an experience of always just making, leaving this place encouraged and, and, and always positive? We hope that God would do so with us. But is always the case? Should it always be that way? Sometimes the presence of the Lord confronts us. Sometimes the presence of the Lord convicts us. Is it possible that God's presence with us demands our submission to Him? Is it possible that God's presence with us demands and requires our constant repentance and that we as a congregation do not ignore unrepentant sin? Now, if we look at the rest of the book of is, is, uh, and, the, and the story of Israel, we find out that even though God made these provisions for the story of Israel, for the life of Israel, the tabernacle, reality is that the nation of Israel failed. 
they failed to live up to the, to the requirements of the law. They failed to live up to the requirements of the tabernacle and end of the temple. And that's why when we arrived in the New Testament, God provides a fulfillment of all these tabernacle and temple edifices. And it's not the church. It's Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see how we truly have free access to God, open access to God through the blood of the one who saved us. But dear friends, let me remind you, in the book of Hebrews is a wonderful reminder that in Christ we have full access to God's presence. But the book of Hebrews also is a reminder. It's full of reminders of severe warnings for those who claim to be God's children but who continue to live in unrepentant sin. So as we finish today the book of Exodus, we want to end on this note. Yes, God's presence with His people triumphs. God ends up moving in with His people. But in this process, we find out that the process of adjusting is not easy. People need to adjust to the Lord. And the Lord's holiness and, and, and command needs to set in the camp so that the nation will indeed be a holy nation. As we seek to be the people of God, as we seek to be the nation, the people whom God re redeemed, we can only be so through the blood of Christ. But dear friends, let us remember, the presence of God is a sign of God's grace with us. But it's a grace that demands. It's a grace that purifies. It's a grace that makes us closer into the picture and nature and character of God. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the story of Israel. And we thank you for the way you revealed yourself to your people. We thank you for your desire, for your initiative to live among your people. Dear Lord, we saw that no matter how good the instructions were, how, how well put you have been, you have given the instructions. If we look at the end of the story, in the nation of Israel, they failed. They kept failing. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of the tabernacle, who was the fulfillment of the temple, and it was in him that you came to dwell amongst us. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have open access to your presence. And Lord, we can come with full confidence and faith to be with you. Lord, we pray that we would not take your presence for granted. And we pray that your presence would continue to transform us. We pray that your presence would continue to bring us closer to you. We pray that we would learn to repent of our sins and to be a people who conforms to your character. Dear Lord, we pray that your presence would be with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.